Hello everyone, my name is Joshua Gilliland, one of the bloggers on The Legal Geeks and the founder of Bowtie Law. Thank you for joining me today for a very special discussion about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. If you have not seen this film, stop listening, go to the closest movie theater and see it. It is a rip-roaring good time, it is a love letter to all things Spider-Man, and it's a beautiful tribute to... Steve Gitko, Stan Lee, Brian Michael Bendis, and everybody who's ever worked on Spider-Man comics. The story takes place on Earth 1610, where Peter Parker has been Spider-Man for a full decade. He's at the top of his game. He has merchandise. He has an album out. He somehow still has a secret identity, so thus he's able to make money on being Spider-Man, but I don't know how that money is laundered so his identity is not outed to anyone so that's an interesting issue and we are introduced to a teenage miles morales who lives in this world who's been accepted to an elite prep school for gifted youth and he's having a tough time fitting in the kingpin of this universe commissioned Dr. Olivia Octavius to build an interdimensional collider to find identical versions of his late wife and son. The experiments caused a breach in the multiverse, allowing different property from different realities to crash into New York of uh, 1610. This also allowed different versions of Spider-Man and other web-slingers to get pulled into Earth 1610 against their will. This includes a middle-aged Peter Parker who's been Spider-Man for 22 years, so he's about 38, just below middle age, but he's had a rough go at it. Mary Jane's left him. He has a belly. Things aren't going his way. We also have Gwen Stacy, who's a Spider-Woman, who's at the top of her game at, at just a little over a year of after being bitten by a radioactive spider. So she's still new on the scene, but has some experience. We also have Spider-Ham, Spider-Man Noir, and Penny Parker from the far future or near future with her radioactive spider who pilots an Iron Man type armor for the spider that Penny can get into. So first up, let's talk about what happened here. Kingpin planned to kidnap identical versions of his wife and son from a different universe since his wife and son were killed in a car crash after they saw Kingpin beating up Spider-Man. This raises an interesting issue because he's literally kidnapping from a different dimension and arguably kidnapping the wife and son of a mirror version of himself. This seems like a great way to start an interdimensional gang war where you have two Kingpins against each other fighting over their wife and son. So kidnapping aside, this seems like a bad plan that only a supervillain would come up with. And it's, it's not smart on his part, but he does it anyway. There's lots of property damage that happens in the climax of the film. And that raises very strange issues of how do we sue Kingpin for this? Because mirror property flies in, hits things, causes damage, and then when the crisis is alleviated, goes away. 
is there still property damage from whatever hit you know the property on 1610 additionally since kingpin's building is destroyed surrounding property is damaged by that new york case law examining property damage uh from intentional blasting has strict liability for surrounding property damage and this goes back to a 1969 case spano v uh, perini corp now while there was a view that if people are knocking down buildings to build new ones like that's a good thing but you then get into the issue of you can't shift liability to your neighbors for damages you cause there's a wonderful issue from earlier case law saying hey as long as they took reasonable steps they could be protected from liability and and that was later shot down saying like no that that's not right you cannot have a defendant avoid liability if they show they took reasonable care to avoid injury or injury because someone who engages in blasting should be able to impose this risk upon uh, neighbors or property without assuming responsibility thereof. Like, that's bad. <laughs> like, you don't want that to happen. So coming up with a strict liability standard makes sense because you do not want blasting taking place and somebody saying like, hey, I blew it up in a reasonable manner, therefore all the property that I damaged is you know not my fault same type of logic would apply to kingpin people don't just build particle colliders to breach into different universes he does property damage takes place he should be strictly liable for that damage that took place to neighboring property now there could be some interesting uh, proof issues that could border on but for causation or maybe just a little raise ipsa a couple different theories you could say of my house was okay particle accelerator explodes a tire goes through the window and that happened because of the particle collider exploding that's all on kingpin and that should be all the proof that's necessary now they need photos they need to be able to show that there was causation between the two that but for the particle collider exploding the house was undamaged before that now it is damaged because of collisions with property from other dimensions the other issue that you could get into is when his building collapses because that's from 1610 that's more clear and being able to analyze that saying like hey your experiment blew up your building and the surrounding property or cars that are crushed is all on him so there are ways to civilly sue kingpin and his shell companies for the experiments that he conducted to kidnap mirror versions of his late wife and son that you could successfully recover on now there are criminal issues as well kingpin kills the 1610 version of peter parker that's murder now uh, miles is the only witness to the crime therefore he would need to be able to testify in some way which could blow a secret identity so that's a problem of how do you get that in who's another witness that they could have that could show liability because there's a issue of who's still left 
after that scene takes place. But let's break into a bigger issue. Why is Spider-Man such a relatable, popular character? We've now seen multiple versions of Spider-Man on the big screen. You know, Tobey Maguire did a magnificent job. Uh, Andrew Garfield did you know, fine. Uh, Tom Holland is exceptional. And now we have an animated version that showed us three different versions of Peter Parker, and Peter Porker, if you want to include that one, uh, and Miles. What works about this character? Well, people remember being awkward teenagers, whether if you are one right now or you were one, everyone goes through that. And Spider-Man starting out as the teenage superhero is something uh, that connects with people on a fundamental level because they experience that. On the flip side, seeing the, you know, beat up 38-year-old Peter Parker who's seen better days is relatable for those of us who could be in our late 30s or 40s who might go, yeah, I get that. Things didn't go according to plan. So there's that factor as well. Uh, you throw in Gwen Stacy and you have uh, young women and, and women who can identify with a female superhero uh, and her story. Like what Spider-Man or any web slinger has gone through seems to be very relatable. I think it's why people can connect with the character on a fundamental level. And this movie is such a love letter to literally every Spider-Man property that's out there. There's a beautiful call out to uh, Michael Bendis. Uh, the Stan Lee cameo is exceptional, especially considering the, the timing of his passing. It just works extremely well in connecting Spider-Man lore and why people love this character. So that concludes this mini episode. Highly recommend go see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and read Spider-Man comics. Until next time, stay geeky. Stay geeky, America.